This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is incredibly fascinating. His name is Joel Salinas. But before we get to my conversation with him, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Chase Sapphire, who we partnered up with to bring you today's episode. When I'm not in the Goop office, I might be flying back and forth to New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle to interview the guests you hear on the show every week. I love getting to sit down with these incredible people and much prefer having a face-to-face conversation and traveling has its pros and cons. With the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card, there are some pretty sweet perks though. You can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide, and an even better bonus is that those points are worth 50% more when you redeem them for travel through Chase. So maybe you'll go for that hotel upgrade, or spring for some more legroom, or extend your next road trip through the weekend. Visit chase.com sapphire to learn more. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Dr. Joelle Salinas is a neurologist and the author of Mirror Touch. Dr. Salinas has something called Mirror Touch Synesthesia, which means he can physically feel what the people around him physically feel, which is wild. Today, we're talking about what it's like to live with this extraordinarily rare trait and how he manages it without becoming overwhelmed. Joelle explains how he uses this gift when he's working with patients and how this has given new meaning to the word empathy. When he says he feels your pain, he means it. I think that's where the the whole, like the E word comes in, the whole empathy mm-hmm. part comes in, where there's this kind of, there's this chasm, there's just space between people that we just have to take our risk and just, just leap and see how how we can connect Mm-hmm. How, where can we, where can we find overlaps where we don't typically have overlaps? How can we assume kind of the best intentions in someone before we assume the, the worst intentions? Okay, let's get to my chat with Joelle Salinas. Well, thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I, it's funny speaking to you. I feel because I always like to do these in person. Mm-hmm. Now I feel extra self-conscious because I'm like, what, <laughs> what am I, what am I making you feel? Oh. I hope I'm just making you feel awash with blue. Oh, it, it feels good. It feels good. And starting out with a hug. I mean, what a, what a great way to toast. <laughs> so when you are walking through the world mm-hmm. as a, as someone with mirror touch synesthesia, which will, I'll definitely have you explain. Yeah. Do you see, so you see everyone in color? 
That's that's one part of it. I yeah. mean, I think it's like the spotlight of my attention can go from one heightened kind of vivid sense to to another. But I would say the the there's this kind of I think the, the word for it is like ordinal linguistic personification or OOP, which is where like letters and numbers have their own personalities and characteristics. In addition to that, my numbers also and letters have colors. And then it also works in the other direction where when I see people, there's like immediately, like if I were to take like a, like a fraction of a fraction of a second and then kind of zoom into it, I would first kind of experience a color, which would then be followed by a number or multiple numbers, which then I can kind of like be like, oh yeah, these are the personality traits that relate to those numbers and those are the personality traits that my brain is relating to them. And is that based on your experience of the person or literally their energy field it's like immediate it's like uh you know how we we all have implicit bias Mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's essentially that my brain takes whatever information is available from the past the context and what it sees and like split 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 the second it comes up with this kind of impression of the person does the color field around a person or the numbers and and letters that are emerging does it evolve as you get to know them or do you find that there's like a spiritual knowing that's part of it where you're you're accurate oh my gosh i think there's a i mean there there is some accuracy to it and actually i i the scientist in me always struggles with my brain i'm sure (laughs) it's like (laughs) oh because there's this tension of I, i i know how to like you know, it has to be falsifiable, have to generate the hypothesis, have to test it to make sure it's controlled. And then the, the, the human in me is like, this feels great. Right. This, is, this is amazing. So with the with the, these associations of colors and numbers with people, it often eerily, I feel, is a little bit more accurate than, than I give it credit. And I think that's just, just like all the past experience of my brain and kind of the patterns that I've seen. So as I'm walking around, there is that kind of layer of kind of color and numbers, which as I get to know the individual a lot more, more numbers kind of get added to that. So Interesting. I, so it just gets more specific. Yeah. But it's yeah. like generally in the ballpark. Yeah. And it, it, if I spend a lot of time with the person, it can actually flesh out into a whole kind of beautiful mural in a way, or like a mosaic. So what color am I? Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so there's it, it, there's a mix. So you there's the, the cool blue four. Uh-huh. There's uh, the, a yellow eight. There is... A, a kind of the kind of white, slightly iridescent zero, and what, what I think is interesting about yours is that there's they're kind of held together by by a red two, and and so for 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 <laughs> listeners, so this just doesn't seem like I'm speaking some kind of kind of like secret code. <laughs> so the the four, so for me, fours are kind of very friendly. There's a, like a, I don't want to say passive; it's more like Pacific. There's something very peaceful and friendly that I aspire to. Eight, typically, for some reason in my head, it's like eight is this very kind of like middle of America, like very hardworking. Zero is usually there's something like very special about a person that's kind of atypical. And the two is uh, kind of like a fierce femininity. There's kind of like a ferocity there. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like it kind of holds it together. Yeah. I like it, Joelle. <laughs> I'll take it. Have you ever had your aura photographed and does it match or have you seen aura photographs and do they match with your experience? You know, I've seen I've seen some aura photographs like on on TV, but not in person. And I think what's what's interesting about auras is there's uh there's this one study in Spain where they looked they they actually gathered people who experienced auras and they brought them into the lab and they found out that the majority of them actually had synesthesia. And so kind of their their kind of color perceptions of people were tied to kind of how their brain kind of had developed and how it's wired and programmed. And there are people where I'll tell them kind of like my my kind of number color association with them and people will kind of imbue it with a lot of like deep significance like, oh, that's my favorite color or oh my God, that number means so much to me. Yeah. And I think those are like magical moments that I usually just tell the scientists and me to be quiet. <laughs> I know. I can't. It's so interesting <laughs> to me that you are a doctor scientist based on what the, the amount that that requires you to both deal with, you know, theoretical fact and then also people. Yeah. Right. So, OK, can you explain for everyone how how common is synesthesia? Mm-hmm. And then I know mirror touch is incredibly rare. Mm-hmm. And do the two always go to, together or? No, not usually. So synesthesia, 
it's kind of interesting. Synesthesia is becoming more and more recognized by, by people just because we're talking about it a lot more. Synesthesia is essentially, if you take that word apart, sin and anesthesia, sin is to bring together, anesthesia is to touch. So it's kind of, or, or the sensation. So it's a kind of a blending of different senses in a way. Uh, and typically in synesthesia, at least the way that psychologists and neuroscientists study it, it's kind of these cross kind of sensory uh, associations that people have where they may experience kind of the color violet when they hear a violin or mm -hmm. they may taste vanilla whenever they see the color yellow or feel something pointy on their tongue whenever they hear the sound of a, of a clarinet. And, and there's all sorts of weird exotic kind of combinations of that. And typically those associations develop kind of pretty early in our lives around the same time that our brains are actually developing, which kind of makes a lot of sense. And it, they're pretty stable over time, and they tend to run in families, which is different from the kind of association of senses that people, the blending that people have when they're on something like LSD or, mm -hmm. or acid, which is very specific to the time. And if they were to do it again, it may be a very different association. And synesthesia is believed, at least at least from what's been studied, and it's actually been, it was first really looked at, mm, I want to say like eight, late 1800s, uh, and then kind of got buried when science was really focused on what's called like behaviorism. Basically, like if I, if I can't see it, then I don't want to hear about it. And then now that we have neuroimaging and that we can look at how the brain activates, people have gotten a lot more inter interested in it and been able to study it. And over the last several decades, some of the stuff that's been learned is that people who do have synesthesia, their brains, their brains look and work differently compared to other people. And they also typically have different genetics. And interestingly, some of those genetics have overlaps with people on the autistic spectrum. Interesting. Um, kind of differences in how the brain is connected. And so overall, about uh, four out of 100 people have at least one form of synesthesia. And if someone has one form, they typically will have maybe one more or, or, or even more types of synesthesia. And people with synesthesia are all over. Even if you don't think you have synesthesia, you almost definitely know somebody who does and you just haven't asked the right question. Like that yeah. sound, what did it look like to you? Right. Uh, and people, uh, celebrities have it as well. And it tends to inform their their art forms. So, for example, Lady Gaga, Pharrell, Tori Amos, uh, Billie Eilish. These are all people who have synesthesia. Even physicists like Richard Feynman, his colors informed how he memorized different equations in physics. And in your experience of synesthesia, does it map to others or do you all see different, have different mm. associations? Like, is it the same? Yeah, there's a really fascinating work in this, which I think is just so interesting about the human condition. So on one side, if you look at people who have just synesthesia, as best as, as, as kind of science can define it, there are some similarities across people. So just kind of thinking uh, to what's called grapheme color synesthesia. So letter or numbers that are tied to a color. So mm -hmm. for example, for me, letter A is red, B is orange, C is black, D is brown, E is blue, F is a different shade of blue, G is green, <laughs> and so on and so on. And if anybody who's listening has synesthesia, my colors are correct. Um, <laughs> <laughs> One true synesthesia <laughs> <right>. right here. <laughs> Well, what they find when you gather all these different associations that there are some clustering mm -hmm. of, of color and letter associations. So, for example, kind of letters that are what's called higher frequency, you just happen to come across more frequently, are brighter in color. So like vowels, for example, typically very bright colors. Letter A is often red. Letter O is often white. Lower frequency letters, letters that you don't often see, like Z or X, are often kind of like darker colors, like black or like a dark purple so that's something that people have in common. Another thing that's interesting, so there was one study done by David Eagleman. He had kind of collected a ton of these different associations, and there was a group of people who had a lot of similarities across with them, and they asked themselves, well, why is this? And so they looked a little bit at kind of other information. They saw that they were all around the same age. So they figured, like, why? So then what, what, what is it about that? And so they looked that they were all around three or four years old in the early 80s, around the same time that Fisher-Price released a set of colored alphabet magnets. And I had that, that set of magnets, yeah. and there's a lot of overlap. And, and that's, it's part of how it kind of helps to inform a little bit about synesthesia and how all of our brains kind of become programmed and wired as we develop. It's kind of like how we learn language. In those very early years of our lives when we're very spongy, these connections tend to form and and they can stick for a very, very long time. Yeah. So I know you mentioned this overlap with autism and I would and there's probably an overlap with savantism, right? 
can I ask you the goopiest of all goopy questions? But, uh, the goopiest. Okay. So do you believe that you, if, if you think about the filter, if you think about consciousness mm-hmm. and the filter theory and this idea that our brains, that there's all this information mm-hmm, in the mm-hmm. universe, spiritual or otherwise, and that our brains cannot take it all in, but that you are tapping into very real fields that the rest of us have filtered out? Mm, is mm. that the idea? Or is it you're creating something that doesn't exist? The 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 perception that's yeah. there, it's it's hmm. That's a, that's a fascinating question because a lot of it really relates to how we just perceive reality in general, mm-hmm. right? We as as hard as it is to really grasp, I think there's this aspect of having a brain that our reality is constantly being hallucinated mm-hmm. more than we give it credit. There are things that we see and hear and touch that are right in front of us that actually aren't there, but to us is just so so real. And there's a lot of overlap, and the things that overlap between all of us, we we kind of a, we call reality, right? But there there is some 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 frayed edges, these kind of fringes that don't don't actually really have an overlap. So there's a fair amount of creation that that happens into that, but there's I think there's more to it than that. So in people who uh, there's people who have synesthesia, right? But there's also these kind of cross sensory experiences that people who don't have synesthesia can have. And the, the term for that is cross-sensory correspondences or cross-sensory illusions. And this is something that just about everybody has. So, for example, that uh, things that we consider hot are tied to colors like orange and red or or kind of imagery of fire or spiky things. Or if we think about things that are cold, there's the blue and whites. If I were to draw a picture of a sharp little pointy little star looking thing and like a a kind of a circular kind of blobby looking thing. And I would say, which one is called Kiki and which one's called Booba? Almost everybody will say that the sharp pointy one is Kiki and the blobby mm-hmm. one is Booba. And so there's a lot in our culture that helps to inform these associations. There's a lot in just kind of being around in nature that informs these associations. So kind of danger and red, for example, you think about in the wild, kind of like poisonous snakes and things like that typically have this kind of bright red that's tied to them. But there's this other layer that may tie to some really interesting connections where people who just culturally are very different, kind of born and raised in very different parts of the world, will still have some of these associations. Like, for example, light, bright uh, objects typically are tied to higher pitch sounds, and large, dark objects are tied to lower pitch sounds. Mm-hmm. And there's almost this kind of like genetic poetry to how we all have these these links, regardless of where where we were born and raised. It's true. It's really interesting, and it's I was you know thinking about you as a child, sort of to and from Nicaragua, and being different or being weird. I think is what you called yourself, and not understanding or realizing mm-hmm. that you were in fact quite different in the way right. that you perceived the world. And I used as a child. I I don't think I'm alone in this. I was fixated on this idea of like, is blue blue? Like, how do I, how will we ever know that what I see mm. is the same as what you see? Like, yeah. I couldn't understand. I don't know how oh, you. Ex- it's it's hard. Oh man, it's hard. And like the deeper you, you look into it, the harder it is to to figure it through. It's kind of like uh, there's the cognitive satiation is the term for it. It's like if you if you look at a word and you like say it over and over and over and over and over again, it eventually loses its meaning altogether. Right. It's kind of like that. But the idea of kind of like, I think color is a beautiful example because there's the pigment, right? That's a like that's a physical thing. It's molecules, and those molecules bounce light off of it at a very specific wavelength, right? But the color, that's that's what our brain gets to interpret and give a name for and have a quality to that other people don't. Like I give my, uh, the example of my brother in the book who's colorblind. Mm-hmm. So to him, his his green and red is very different from our green and red because he just doesn't have the cells and the kind of the pigment in, in those in those actual those cells in this, the back of his eye that can interpret those wavelengths. And so to him, uh, he would prefer to see something that's very blue and yellow because that's more vibrant than than the rest of us. And we may perceive like whole other realities in so many other kind of intricate ways. Yeah. And then it's just such a bet, right? Yeah. We're just like betting on this idea that we're all sharing in the same experience. But it is a mystery. Yeah. Well, I think that's where I think that's where the the whole like the E word comes in. The whole empathy mm-hmm. part comes in where there's this kind of there's this chasm there's a space 
between people that we just have to take our risk and just, just leap and see how how we can connect. Mm-hmm. How where can we where can we find overlaps where we don't typically have overlaps? How can we assume kind of the best intentions in someone before we assume the the worst intentions? Absolutely, and you obviously. Now I'm conscious of the fact that I'm like stroking my arm. <laughs> Sorry, no, but you have <laughs> you have a leg up on us, right? Because you have mirror touch, which I have so many questions about. Yeah, yes. So can you explain what mirror touch is? Yeah. So mirror touch is just one of many different forms of synesthesia. And actually, when when people talk about different types of synesthesia, it's it's those types are actually more kind of concepts that are developed for research. So like sight and sound, taste and sound. But I think in reality, it, the brain is just a lot more messy. It's like mashed potatoes in there. There's all these different senses and things that kind of mix together. And one strand of that is kind of like this vision and touch element that researchers have called mirror touch synesthesia. And so what what mirror touch synesthesia is, I guess the easiest way to explain it is that whatever I see somebody else feel, my my brain makes me feel automatically as if I were them. And that's physically and and emotionally. And when I say emotionally, that's also physically Mm -hmm. um, as well. And a lot of it depends on the context of my brain's past experiences. But there's this kind of automatic assumption that my brain has that I'm looking in a mirror and that you are me and I'm you. And it's just like very reflexive. It's so cool. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that must, it must, I know from your book that it's tough, but yeah. So like, as I like stroke my arm, you can feel what that feels yeah, like. Yeah. You're stroking the left <laughs> part of your arm on the elbow and I'm feeling it on my right elbow moving up and down. Yeah. I'll just tickle you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and is that... One question I had from the book, is that based on your visual perception of what's happening Mm. or do you, can you feel, can you feel that without sight? Oh, we're really going down this rabbit hole. I love it. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So the way that it was initially studied was really focused on vision, like visual Mm -hmm. information. And that was back in 2005 was the first person that was reported to have mirror touch where they were in a class talking about synesthesia and someone came to the professor afterwards and said, I have this thing, I don't think it's synesthesia, but when I see people get touched, I feel like I'm being touched. And that's when the the first study started to happen where they looked at people's brains and gave it a name. But now scientists are actually kind of calling the whole idea a lot more along the lines of like a mirror sensory synesthesia or what they call vicarious tactile perception or even more specific conscious vicarious tactile perception. Scientists are not very good at naming. The idea is that yeah, any, any kind of sensory information that's available, even at, at a level that is not consciously perceptible, may actually be informing your brain to try to recreate this other person's experience as best as possible. So it does relate to, like, talking to somebody over the phone, for example, just hearing hearing the distress in someone's voice or the pleasure in someone's voice. I can begin to kind of, my, 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 my brain and my body will begin to kind of take on some, some of that very physical feeling as well. And... We all have mirroring or we all have this to some extent, right? Like if you see someone get hit by a a bike, you're like, you can sort of feel in your body what that feels like based on your past experience. But yours seems like, well, obviously much more extreme, but also more specific. And I think that's one of the the really fascinating things about mirror touch is, is that anybody can just learn something really powerful about themselves and learning about mirror touch in that this is this is a part of part of what it what it is to be human. It's, part, it's in our brain. We have these mirroring systems that kind of developed in us. So anybody, when you see somebody move or experience pain or pleasure or being touched, your brain is below the surface, recreating their experience to to a degree. Mm-hmm. The more you relate with them, the more you see yourself with them, kind of like a like a spouse or a child or someone that physically looks like you, the more vivid that experience is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it gets so vivid that it's uh, it's very conscious that you can actually yeah. perceive it. And there's times where you're kind of caught off guard. So like the example of someone being hit by a bus or someone suddenly being tackled at a football game, that ooh kind of cringe feeling is yeah. that system becoming so active that it's almost like it's physically happening to you. And in the 1.6% of the population that has mirror touch synesthesia, that system is like on like on a 10 all the time. Now, whether whether it's distressing or not, or whether it's distracting or not, depends on the actual situation, because the volume on that will fluctuate up and down, just like the volume on our experience 
fluctuates up and down depending on kind of what our attention is and how awake we are and how mm-hmm. and what I would call like cognitively inhibited or disinhibited we are. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. We'll get back to Dr. Salinas in just a second. If you feel like you're overdue for a family vacation or a dinner out with your best friends, I feel you. If you're looking for any incentive to pull the trigger, there's always Chase Sapphire Reserve. With this card, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide. And when you're on the road or on vacation or eating out, this all adds up, as you know. So might as well get rewarded for it, right? The other big perk of the Sapphire card is that you receive up to $300 in statement credits annually as reimbursements for travel purchases charged to your card. So maybe you'll try out that new dinner spot with your friends or finally take a day off and get out of Dodge. Or maybe it's just the scenic train ride to work for you. It all adds up into more rewards with Chase Sapphire Reserve. To learn more, head to chase.com sapphire. You might have heard me admit that my favorite guilty pleasure is a box of my kids' leftover mac and cheese, but I swear that I also use my kitchen for real cooking. I eat pretty clean, at least during the week, and thanks to Goop, my kitchen is stocked with clean products. Avoiding single-use products and trying to keep plastic out of the kitchen is not always easy, but there are some alternatives that have proven far superior. I love the non-toxic, non-stick frying pan set that the Goop team collaborated on with Green Pan. In case you missed it, traditionally, a lot of the nonstick coating options are made from plastic synthetics, but Green Pan skips the toxins and uses a ceramic nonstick coating instead. Their pans are great for everything from sauteing fresh vegetables to searing fish or meat, steaming rice, or throwing together a stir fry. The best part is the really simple cleanup, so I'm not soaking and scrubbing dishes long after we finish dinner. That leaves more time to read with my kids before bed or watch another Netflix show with my husband. The green pan set that's exclusive to the Goop Shop comes with an 8-inch and 10-inch frying pan. And surprise, they're really chic. The pans are a blush pink color and the stainless steel handles are gold-toned, so they make for a very goopy addition to your kitchen or sweet gift to someone else's. You can find the exclusive green pan blush set at shopgoop.com. Or you can visit the green pan site at greenpan.us. If you're ordering something on green pan site, plug in code GOOP30 to get 30% off. That's G-O-O-P-3-0. Back to my chat with Dr. Salinas. So I want to ask you about accuracy, but then before we get to that too, it feels like it's visual, but do you find just in in the context of empathy and Mm. this idea of empaths and the fact that like we can pick up on each other's energy Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's the boundary question of like, what's mine and what's yours and... How, in your experience, do you have sort of extreme energetic empathy mm-hmm. as well? Or is it primarily physical? Yeah, I think it's it's both. So I, I think, so in the, so in, when we think about, in neurosciences, when we think about kind of 
emotions and kind of perceptions uh, that people have, including like pain and pleasure. There's a couple of different dimensions that are part, that are part of that. One dimension is what people will call kind of uh, valence, so how positive or negative, so like pleasure versus pain. Another is like arousal. How awake does it make you feel? How kind of like calm and sleepy does it make you feel? And then there's the what's called the sensory or discriminatory part of it, which is kind of what part of your body is involved in it, like what's being perceived. And whatever experience that, that I have, different it, there's different levels that are being kind of triggered for that. So the I, the 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 energetic or the emotional aspect of it ties into both the physical aspect of it, the the situation, the the sensory aspect of it, and that arousal aspect of it. The the feeling of energy, there's this kind of um there is this arousal component of it. And I think that is a component of of our bodies that really indicates kind of when when there's like an energetic kind of resonance as 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 people talk about or like a like a resonance that people mm-hmm. have with others. And then there that's that's it's actually it it sounds like it's not physical, but it is very physical because mm-hmm. it's both going on in not just like the the skin on your knees and your arms and elbows, but also uh, your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing rate, how how tense the smooth muscle of your stomach and your intestinal like your intestines are, and your perception of all those things and kind of what you're projecting. It all kind of blends together. For many people who have mirror touch, at, at a very fundamental level, it feels very mechanical and very physical, where mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily have to have the emotional component to it, but it really can when um, when you're taking in the whole the whole picture. And actually, when people have studied mirror, people with mirror touch synesthesia, they have a higher amounts of this um, kind of affective empathy. Mm-hmm. As you know, there's the different types of, of empathy. And I, I think that's kind of a combination of of the arousal and the valence and the and the sensory components all coming together. And so when you're I would imagine as a doctor that it is it a useful diagnostic tool for you? Like how accurate is mm-hmm. it just is it so much based on perception that you it's or can you look at someone and feel what they're feeling and say, "Oh, this person is having a heart attack." Mm. You know, I I think it comes in handy clinically. Yeah. And it depends on the situation. It, a lot of it really depends on the situation. So I'll give an example where it's not so helpful is in the case of an emergency where right. like it's clear the person has a having a cardiac arrest and we need to go through an algorithm like step, 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 step. Right. And in those situations, being totally in the patient's shoes, not helpful. That yeah, is not you're helpful. having a cardiac <laughs> yeah, arrest. Exactly, not good. Dying. I know you have died many times. <laughs> yeah. So just having that experience, I have to kind of really focus in on my own physical experience, kind of draw away from kind of that spotlight of attention out, out of there. So that way I can go through that algorithm almost kind of like robotically. But then when I'm sitting with a patient in, in a clinic room and, uh, you know, there's not a hurry, having that ability to be able to reflexively kind of have that that kind of resonance that's there, whether it's accurate or not, which I think is an important thing to, to remember, that it's all being informed by my past experiences. So there, it, mo- both people may feel like it's very accurate, but sometimes it, it may not, but it, it's still very real for both people. Yeah. That can be really helpful in informing a, a diagnosis potentially. So I, I can give you a, a, a lot of examples, but one example, I had this patient who had had a, a stroke and he had, I mean, he, he, he began to have the stroke and be able to give him medication in the, in the emergency room so he could avoid it. But he was in this very kind of precarious situation where at any moment he could have another stroke and it wasn't a really, really good treatment. And when I was seeing him in the clinic after afterwards, you know, he was telling me how he was like dieting and exercising his um his hemoglobin A1C, which is the number that people follow when they have diabetes. So the lower number is better. And his number had gone down by quite a bit. And I kind of congratulated him. Like he had just like won like the health, like Olympic gold medal. And while he was kind of kind of smiling and laughing, there was this like physical sensation to me that just was not consistent with the physical sensation I typically get with people who are like very happy and laughing. And so at that point, I had to make a decision to to respond to that, to actually have curiosity about it and, and ask, how, how are you feeling? And he just broke down crying mm. and turned out that he had been just so anxious and so depressed since then that he was just become a total wreck. And we were able to really have a more open conversation because of that and actually help put together a plan. And he's doing so much better. But it's not something that you can't really 
order a blood test for, you can't get an MRI for. It's something that I think having mirror touch helped to cue in, for me at least, in, into it to ask. And it's similar for, for other clinical situations. There's just uh, one patient I was asked to see in the hospital when I was doing neurology consults, and it's a woman with cerebral palsy. And she woke up one morning and was just like very combative. She was like punching and kicking at, at nurses and, and just the, the, the team that was taking care of her wanted me to come over to evaluate and then prescribe medication to essentially sedate her. And when I got there, I kind of had the same phys- usual physical sensations and seeing somebody like the sweat on her brow. I felt those over my brow. Whenever she would shake the, the bed rails, I'd feel like my physical body was shaking the bed rails. But there was also this other kind of subtle sensation in my own chest that was of my chest rising kind of faster and higher than, than my own breathing. And I decided to take a, a risk and, and make a recommendation on a, on a test where we found out that she actually had blood clots in her lungs. And if it hadn't been for for that kind of mirror touch, taking a risk there, we wouldn't have found out um, that she wasn't combated because she was like angry or upset, but because she couldn't breathe. Mm. Yeah, I would imagine, I want you to be my pediatrician, <laughs> <laughs> right? But for, for, for patients who can't speak or are otherwise incapacitated, it seems like a very valuable secret weapon. It, it, I think it can be helpful. And I think I also don't want to oversell it either, right? Because right. because I'm human and I have a brain, and I mean, my brain is a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> it's a hot mess, but with hot mess comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah, but do you train? I I wonder. You know, we I know a lot of incredible, and obviously there's tons of frauds, but I know some incredible mediums and intuitives and one thing that they all have in common is that they train right mm-hmm. that they're getting this symphony of information mm-hmm. that's extra outside of the normal perception and then they're tr- working really hard to understand the language yeah. and to be able to yeah. translate it so i'm not saying that this is necessarily mm-hmm. the same thing mm-hmm. although my goopiness is like <laughs> this seems like some variation of it but do you train it yeah i would say that i do and i and i say that i train it it's I mean, it's just like training being in the body, right? Being in my mm-hmm. body and being open to understanding that my brain is different and that I have different reactions to things and that I need to figure out when there's a creak in the house, what does that mean? Right. And and not to freak out over it and to actually listen to it sometimes. Like if there's a subtle something to like pay attention to it because that might actually help help something. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it's just kind of a, a, some, somebody is just like nervous or, or there's something just kind of not related to, to the situation at hand. So I, I would say that there, that there was a lot of training as a part of it. And I think even when I, when I started medicine, when I, the kind of the story that I opened my book with is kind of when I first saw uh, someone die. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, kind of just newly minted, kind of like medical student, finally in the hospital, so excited, sitting in the workroom with the supervising internist. And she was teaching me kind of about the patients that we had just seen. And then suddenly out of nowhere, a code blue alarm goes off. A code blue alarm means that someone is in a cardiac arrest where their heart stopped. And it just so happened that this patient was right around the corner. So she runs out the door and I'm like running after her, kind of excited to like learn and to like be like the medical person who can be there available to help. And we walk into the to the scene and people are already kind of like gathering around this this man who's on the floor and... I immediately find uh, myself feeling the sensation of the lolium floor on my back. Mm-hmm. As he's getting chest compressions, I feel my chest caving in with each compression. As they slide a breathing tube down his throat, I feel as though there's a sharp object being slid down the back of my throat. Uh, and after after about 30 minutes, they end up pronouncing him dead. And at the, that moment, I just remember feeling like all the sensations in my body had just turned off and it was just total silence. It was so eerie to have this feeling of just not being alive. I had to will myself to breathe. And the choice that I made then was to run away. Mm-hmm. I went to the nearest bathroom. I threw up. I had to splash water in my face and just stare at my reflection and tell myself that I didn't die, that this is my body. And this was before I even knew what mirror touch was. Right. And, and kind of having this really just frustration with the, my, myself with kind of my experience and realizing that if I wanted to be a really good doctor that could be there for patients, I had to figure out how to how to manage that in some way. And I think that was 
part of my medical school and residency training and my all, my all my years of education and clinical training has been kind of figuring that out, training it from dealing with like this physical pain in other people and, and kind of very uh, like physical trauma to the next more challenging level, which was surprising for me, it was psychological trauma was really hard for me to, to, to kind of witness and be a part of. Yeah. And then extending that into my personal life, which was this whole other training. <laughs> it was like I had to figure out how to be a doctor first before I could deal with kind of my, my, my personal life kind of challenges. And yeah, I think I'm still learning, but I feel like I've come such a long way from, from the time that I was this little chubby little Nicaraguan kid <laughs> kind of keeping to himself uh, from other people. We're going to take a quick break. It's that time of the year again. We're celebrating one of our favorite holidays on Saturday, November 16th. It's called Ingoop Health. And for the first time, we'll be up north around San Francisco. If you're not familiar with Ingoop Health, it's our Super Bowl version of a wellness summit. Gwyneth and I will be hosting a series of talks and panels with incredible thought leaders, and there are many more extraordinary practitioners, teachers, and culture changers leading classes and workshops. We'll be covering a lot of ground, physically and metaphorically. We'll learn about intimacy, the power of connection, fasting, tools for reducing stress, and how to quiet our inner critics. We'll be joined by some of the people I admire most, like psychotherapist and psychological astrologer Jennifer Freed and psychiatrist Will Sue, who are teaching a joint workshop on manifesting your authentic self. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck will be leading a masterclass on money. Judy White is teaching a workshop on what dreams really mean. Walter Longo is giving us his longevity secrets. And you'll get to bounce on a mini trampoline with Lauren Roxborough, which is, coincidentally, my favorite pastime. And because it's Goop, you can also expect B12 shots galore, amazing food and drinks, and some surprises along the way. If you've been to an Ingoop Health before, I hope you'll be back. And if this is your first time, I can't wait to meet you. The summit is on Saturday, November 16th, and you can get tickets now at goop.com slash ingoophealth. And now, back to today's conversation. What, in your experience, is it... You know, the psych ward, was it experiencing schizophrenia and psychosis? Like, mm-hmm. is that, what is, where, when, what is the most impactful in terms, I mean, not in a positive way. But. Yeah, yeah. Like, what's the most vivid and kind of like a yeah. distressing way? I mean, for, for me, there's a couple of things that come into it and I can give an example, but it's you know, situations that are uh, new, that, I, there are, that are catch me off guard, so they're surprising, and that I can have some kind of a personal tie to either I've experienced in the past myself or or there's something that's happened to me that I, that can relate very closely with it. Or like they look a lot like me, for example, identify with them. And that turns the volume from like a 10 to like a 20. And so the, the patients that I would see in the behavioral unit in the hospital as a medical student was so challenging. People who were in kind of just like floored psychosis, with, with hallucinations and just really having a really hard time kind of regulating themselves. Like that was really, really painful to watch, but also just really distressing for me because in in my head, I found my, not just my body, but also my thoughts beginning to kind of follow similar patterns to the point where I really had to figure out kind of ways to to kind of manage it. And I think some of some of the things that have really helped me, and I know that some people who who don't have mirror touch but just have kind of this extreme of 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 empathy, the things that have been really helpful for me, I think one has been kind of this like boundary setting that 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 we talk about a lot, and I think it's it's a it's a hard one to really understand because boundaries it can mean so many different things, but to me at least, boundaries is really learning how to say yes and no. And when when you say no, sometimes it's really helpful to think of it as a yes to you. Yeah. Um, and having a really firm uh, yes to you or no. <laughs> <laughs> the second piece is, I think, is this we call resilience. But I think that's a lot of it is just like doing a lot of the self-care things that you need to do, like getting sleep, drinking water, making sure that you're eating regularly. And for every ounce of empathy, uh, that there has to be this kind of equal measure of like resilience kind of like stored up. Um, mm. And it's part of the responsibility, I think, of being someone who who is a caregiver, especially. Yeah, um, and no, then that's true. I think the 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 third thing is just like 
being open to growing and practicing. And, and that means like, practicing kind of how to navigate these extremes that we have in life, the extreme of being totally absorbed in the self to being totally absorbed in the other person's experience. Like I think of it as like, a, like if there's kind of a circle on the left and that's you and a circle on the right and that's the other person, there's a spotlight that is our attention and learning how to kind of move that spotlight, not just on yourself and not just on the other person, but be able to navigate this kind of mercury space where you can hold both at the same time or when when you can't be there for somebody else because you need to take care of yourself being able to move that spotlight towards yourself and i i do frequent check-ins especially when i know where i'm going to be in a situation where i'll, I'll need to kind of like tap into this empathy uh, and that's kind of a physical check-in like how am i physically doing how am i physically feeling am i in pain am i tired there's an emotional check-in like have, have i been just like really stressed out and sad or angry and kind of like what am i up for Mm-hmm. And understanding those things can help guide kind of like what I'm okay with and what what can I say no to. And it makes it feel a lot, makes me feel a lot less guilty about when I have to say no for myself. And it also makes me feel a lot less resentment if I do say yes, and then I end up suffering as a result of it. Totally. Yeah. And it seems like the more control, the more boundaries and the more you can go in and come out and even do doing that more efficiently so you're not stuck, mm-hmm. that I think makes so much sense like the 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 ability to sort of like okay as your doctor i relate to you my Mm -hmm. patient and now i'm gonna pull out yeah not in a bad way but in a (laughs) let's not be in your body yeah it's like it's like a (laughs) it's like a it's like a healthy unattachment not a detachment it's like an unattachment (laughs) totally so what and i would imagine like all things that we all have this capacity to i mean obviously we cannot all be Joelle, mm-hmm. but that we all we all live on some sort of spectrum, right? Of yeah. this yeah. capacity. Yeah, I think from either be genetics or past experiences or the way that our brain is wired and programmed, I think we all have kind of like a like a place where we typically hover around in mm-hmm. terms of how open we are to other people's experiences. So, so for some people they're very open to those experiences. And so those are the people that will say like they walk into a room and they take on everybody's negativity. Mm-hmm. And there's the, the the polar opposite. And I think that there is a fair amount of kind of growth and practice that happened there where people can actually move that kind of generic kind of uh, where we typically are either to to more towards the other person or towards towards yeah. yourself. And I think there's tools that we can learn from just basically things like meditation, for example, can really help with that, especially in really extreme situations. Do you think that scientifically there'll be more and more validation for thing for this for the spectrum or like the fact that, you know, energetic empathy or the ability to really feel into other people or I know there's proof of telepathy, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. But do you think that this will become more more common? I think I think research is really extending to learn more about how our brain perceives things and interprets things and kind of what are the consequences of that. Like some of my own research is really focused on what are the effects of like of us interacting with each other, kind of right. how our social relationships relate to to our brain health overall. So I think there's 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 more and more openness towards it. And there's even more and more openness towards some of these kind of like squishier kind of topics in science that don't seem as hard, but actually are, are very important. So like, for example, empathy is something that only really started being studied in earnest, uh, like in the last several decades. And, and empathy is a complicated thing where it's, if you were to define it in a lab, it's a lot more about kind of understanding or like uh, being kind of in tune with the, with the thoughts and feelings of another person. And that's just a part of what we all really want to move towards, or many of us want to move towards, is kind of being closer, kind of uh, as humans, kind of having more humanity, being kinder. Mm -hmm. Because there's this, even in that, there's this bridge we have to cross, which is to actually have, uh, to be able to care for the other person, right? I think there's this kind of choice that has to happen and the the willingness to take on that choice and the ability to be able to to make the choice of uh, this person is suffering and I'm able to help and I want to help uh, this person because they, maybe they don't look like me, but I, I can understand that they that they are suffering. And that, yeah, we call that compassion. We call that empathetic concern. We call that caring for somebody else. And then the actual action, which is to be kind to the person, to do something 
soon as I relieved that some of that suffering. All right, here's a, a final curveball. Well, I have a couple of questions. You can ser- you can serve all the curveballs all day uh, oh, long. Okay. <laughs> so, like, have you ever done LSD or a psychedelic to see how well mm. it matches with your daily experience? So, I think with uh, any any substance that so it's what's interesting about LSD um, is that it does actually affect serotonin type 2A receptors, which is one of the receptors that's um, been kind of theorized to be involved in the synesthesia process. And that experience, as it's described, is pretty... There's a couple of things that relate with my own experience. So one is kind of like the senses kind of combining, but another one is this kind of like oneness with things, or some people call it like a non-duality. And that, yeah. that's just getting real goopy. No, I know. Uh, I was hoping you would go here. <laughs> so so this is what got real goopy right now. So one of the things that makes my brain kind of extra unusual, and probably one of the reasons why my synesthesia is as extreme as it is, is because I had a, a tumor as I was kind of growing up that was discovered only when I was in medical school, and it was located up in this upper right head part um, kind of over the brain. It was a blood vessel tumor. And uh, I ended up having it removed, and thank goodness it was a benign tumor, but it's believed that that the blood vessels kind of as a part of that tumor might have affected how my brain developed in that area. And that brain area is actually really involved in one of where our senses kind of combine and converge. And also it's really involved in kind of being able to tell the difference between yourself and other people and your own mental body map, kind of this self-other experience um, in this, what's called the right temporoparietal junction. And because of it, I think that there's a, there's this heavy extreme, but also it can really relate a lot with people's experiences, especially when they describe having this oneness with the universe, because it's something that I feel all the time. Mm-hmm. And that the language that they use to describe it, kind of this like awe and wonder of even like the slightest little droplet of water. I mean, that's that's part of my my everyday. You're like that is mundane. People. <laughs> I mean, maybe the volume is the volume of it is different, right? Because I got to get work done, right? <laughs> like I had to brush my teeth. <laughs> Be a highly functioning doctor yeah. and neuroscientist. But I think that I, 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 it helps me at least to appreciate that feeling, and when things are really dark in my life, to lean into it a lot more. Are you a spiritual person? Yeah, I would say that I am a spiritual person in that. For me, I'm just so in awe of just the fact that we are all we're living things, that there's laws of physics and equations that help to predict things, and that these highly, highly improbable things, like that a couple of of molecules come together in like a bag of like salt water and turns into a baby, like that is just incredible. So to <laughs> me, that kind of awe of being alive, like that is that helps to inspire me. Um, and to me, that's kind of this, there's there's kind of unspoken kind of intangibleness to things that I think the language that someone might use to describe like the soul or spirit is, I, I will still use those terminology, but that's kind of what, what it means to me. That's kind of like all the past experiences that I've had, my likes and dislikes, how everything kind of comes together in this kind of miraculous way at scales that just like are just mind blowing. I think that that to me, I mean, how could that not be fulfilling for the soul? Absolutely. And the fact that your language is so expansive to include all the other senses. So you're mm-hmm. having just like the richest experience <laughs> of anyone on earth. Well, well, <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I, I, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting to be, to be in my bag of bones. <laughs> I would imagine. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Dr. Joel Salinas. Make sure to check out a copy of his book, Mirror Touch, and you can learn more about him at joelsalinasmd.com. That's J-O-E-L-S-A-L-I-N-A-S-M-D. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.